God, great woe, and great grace. Great grace. Now, the greatness of God is revealed first in the created order. Let's think of Genesis 1. You know, the Spirit of God moved on the face of the deep, and God drew forth his creation. One of the things that came to my mind as I was reading is in Job 38, one of the references, because Job is being lectured by God, and God's explaining himself, and he says, uh, he says, who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth or went out from the womb? When I made a clouded garment and thick darkness is swaddling hand, I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far shall you come, but no farther. Here shall your proud waves stop. And then he says, have you ever commanded the morning? Our great God in creation around us speaks speaks his, his omnipotence. Uh, I was reading and I said, here in, in uh, Job, he speaks three different times. He talks about the constellations. He talks about the Pleiades, the seven sisters, as I grew up knowing it. Uh, and he talks about Orion, and he talks about the bear. Uh, and those constellations, Job, they throw around like, you know, have you ever heard of the Pleiades? And they think of the Pleiades, and I say, yeah, I've seen the seven sisters all my life. I know where Orion is in the sky. Have you ever thought about how far they, they are? We're 93 million miles from our sun. The light from the sun gets to us in eight and a half minutes. The speed of light gets to us from our sun in eight and a half minutes, 93 million miles away. When they speak of the Pleiades and Orion, the, the nearest of the stars that makes up Orion is 1,458 1, trillion miles away. That's 400 or 243 light years. <clears throat> so our light from our sun gets to us in eight and a half minutes. As we're joining, joining Job, looking at the sky, and we're seeing Orion, the nearest of the stars that makes up that constellation is 243 light years away. 1,458 trillion miles. Boom, eight and a half. God is good. Because the light gets to us in eight and a half minutes. That's how great a God we have that the universe that we perceive is that huge, it's that big. And and just recently, they they discovered, it's not like it wasn't there, <laughs> but they discovered through some little anomaly of magnetism, another star they now call Icarus. And it's five billion light years out there. How great is our God that in showing his omnipotence, in creation, bam, we're five billion light years away. And yet the thing that causes me the greatest distress is a wee little dust mite in my house that I can't even see. From the infinite expanse of space that we can't even comprehend to that abusive little thing we can't comprehend either. That, that 
finite, tiny little thing, the greatness of God is revealed in his creation. The greatness of God is also revealed in his purposes. He shows his wisdom and his truth, his immutability. In Isaiah 55, verse 10, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and don't return there without watering the earth and making it bear its sprout, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will be my word which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. God has proclaimed purposes and plans. He said, I'm going to set the stars in the you know, they're going to be for light for you. We're part of his creation. The stars in the sky, the sun, the moon, that's all for our benefit. I have plans, I have purposes, and what I've spoken will come to pass. That same word that won't return without having accomplished the matters to which it was dedicated is what the writer of Hebrews speaks to us in Hebrews 4, where he said, the word of God is like a two-edged sword. It penetrates to our knower, penetrates to the deepest part of us, and reveals us to ourselves and we That word of God is still active, revealing his thoughts and plans and trying, gauging our hearts to turn to that as well. God's will will be accomplished. His way is in his time. The greatness of God is also revealed in his character. And he proclaims holiness, justice, and mercy. In Leviticus 11, God says, put off all that other stuff. Come apart. Come away from among them. Put off that stuff and be holy as I am holy. God calls his people to a special place. In Exodus 25, they're building a, the Ark of the Covenant. And the key piece on the top, they set a pair of angels facing each other. And God called this the mercy seat. And he says, he says, set these angels here facing each other, and they're made of gold, which speaks of redemption in the scriptures. And he says, for there I will meet you. God reveals himself in his holiness, in his justice, and in his mercy. I'll meet you there with a blood is offered. I'll meet you there. In Exodus 33, God says, and by the way, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And yet, this great God creating the universe from large to small, this great God has chosen to participate with his cognizant creation of my words. I can understand what he's doing. We've been created to worship God with our entire being and our entire existence. How many times do I have to hear? Then I want to move to the place where nobody likes to go. It's called Great Woe. And in order to understand great mercy and great grace, you have to understand great woe. Because God is holy and has spoken what is true, 
that truth becomes a basis for establishing righteousness or sinfulness. God's truth, holy God, sovereign God, determines what's righteous and what's sinful. And when his standard of holiness is violated, his perfect and just response is the one that he himself declares it to be. He's not going by my standard. Well, that ain't fair. No, it's not justice either, by the way. God declared this sinful act, this unrighteous response to the standard I have set deserves this. And God says, the soul that sins will die. We go to Genesis 2, Adam and Eve, our favorite first forefathers, both disregarded the clear, unequivocal command of the Lord. Don't eat that stinking thing. The day that you eat of that, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of that, you will die. And the scripture says, Eve was deceived and took an ate of it. Because a certain serpent says, I didn't eat that. For sure you're not going to die. You're his creation. You know, that you're not going to die. And she gave to Adam. The next thing that happened is God comes to meet them. And I'm thinking again, here we have a God wants relationship. He wants communication with his cognizant creation. So God comes to meet Adam, our first fathers. What's happened? They've eaten of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and don't they know? They now know evil. And they hide from God. And it's been that way ever since. The knowledge of our sinfulness causes us to hide from God, the one that created the universe, that not desperately is the wrong word, but think in universal terms. This huge God wants this much to relate to you. And yet, sinfulness keeps us separate from the, from the purity, the wholesomeness, the refreshing of that relationship. But God said, the day you'll eat of it, you'll die. And that's justice. That's justice. The violation of God's holy standard requires judgment. And that's also often called the wrath of God. Now, that's not a fun thing to talk about. But in 1 Corinthians 15, by one man came death. And Adam all died. Romans 5, 15. By the transgression of the one, many died. Romans 5, 16. Romans sometimes doesn't have good news. <laughs> As judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation to all. So we've gone from Adam, and by the way, his first two kids, his elder, his firstborn, killed the second. The knowledge of good and evil, and the action that follows that knowledge, was represented in the first two kids on the planet. Maybe some of you have kids. <laughs> you probably know the first and the second author like that anyway. But this is way more serious than what we encounter. This is this is first sin yielding 
this desperate act of one brother against another because of the dissatisfaction in fear of God. So let's fast forward a few years. We have Noah, Genesis 6, 5. The wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God said, I'll blot out man from the face of the earth. And he said to Noah, you only have I found righteous among men. And so when when Noah was commanded to build the ark, then Peter says something. The floods came in and the ark rose up and eight souls were taken up with it. So God says, I'll blot out man from the face of the earth. You only have I found righteous, but your family I'll protect. Eight, eight souls. The wickedness of man is great on your every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil Fast forward a few more years. We're talking about Israel now. God's already said, be holy as I am holy. Prophet Amos, if you, if you read the Old Testament, there always is a golden thread of grace in every one of the books of the Old Testament. People say, the Old Testament is full of judgment. Well, the other is it's full of God saying, don't do this. We've done it again. Don't do this. You've done it again. We find it Amos. He says, You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Work your way down from Abraham. We're in Israel, and now we're late in the day in Israel. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, because you have not turned, I will punish you for your iniquity. The justice of God requires the judgment, the wrath of God, against those who violate that holy precept. It's the one that establishes the parameters for holiness, for justice. That's the one that makes the rules, not us. God says, because you've not turned. How many times do I have to tell you? And yet, you haven't turned. For this, I'll punish you for your sin. Let's fast forward a few more years. What does mankind come to? We're coming at the time of Christ. Romans 1.28 God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Filled with all unrighteousness, greed, evil, Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, lacking understanding. They're untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And yet they know that those who practice such things are worthy of death worthy of death because it's unrighteousness and the justice of God requires the administration of that. They're worthy of death. They still do the same and they also give their approval to those who practice such things. They're subject to the wrath of God. Romans 2 
Because of their stubborn and unrepentant heart, we store up wrath for the day of righteous judgment. Romans 3.1, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.3, we formerly walked among them in the lust of the flesh and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, which is a little Hebrewism that says, dedicated to wrath, even as the rest. We were lost, guilty, judged, and dead. As a race, we ain't very nice. Because we're all this way. According to the mandate of holiness, all of mankind for a very long time has deserved only punishment and death. Excuse me. Everyone. Now, why belabor the point? Why make so much of the darkness of this? Because unless you understand what's truly merited, it's hard to grasp the glory of what you receive that's not merited. We talk about the grace of God. We're talking about unearned, unmerited favor from God. In the same way that God said, uh, this is what's going to happen. These are the parameters for sin and, and righteousness and judgment. God also set the parameters and said, I won't leave you there. Yeah. Grace delivers unworthy sinners from the just condemnation of God and bestows on them his forgiveness and righteousness only through faith in Jesus Christ. What are the parameters? Only through Jesus Christ. That's the sphere of getting grace. You want to enter into grace? You want to celebrate grace? It's not common grace. Or the, excuse me, the scripture says the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. It's not common grace like you're still breathing, aren't you? We're talking about something different. We're talking about uncommon grace. Uncommon <coughs> grace is found only in Jesus Christ. He's the sole mediator of grace. Amen. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus Christ, a ransom for all. One mediator between God and man. There's one sphere, there's one foundation encompass our only benefit, our only access to the benefit of the grace of God is in Jesus Christ. The day that you step from this side of belief to this side of belief, you step into the available grace of God that would rescue you from the just condemnation for the sin that you obviously demonstrated your whole life. If we don't say it, we think it. If we don't do it, it's there. Because the action is premeditated. 
And if you refrain the action, that's great, you've controlled it, but the thought was still there. You look at that woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery, Jesus said. What? Just the thought. So, sinners, we still are. We are over here. God said, this is where you are. Common grace says you can live, you're going to die eventually. You step into a moment where you put your faith, you rest your total confidence in Jesus to be your deliverer, his sufficiency for all of this. You step into this and God says, my child, I have so much for you. You couldn't appreciate it before. You didn't even understand it before. But the moment you come into grace, as you sing, even sing these the songs that we sing, the grace that God has flooded your life with enters in, and just like me, it bubbles up and leaks out your eyes. <laughs> Romans 5.13 But the free gift is not like the transgression. That free gift there refers to the unearned, the unmerited. Nothing you can do will gain one iota of right standing before God. Nothing you can do. A free unearned gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace by the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Verse 17. If by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign through the one, Jesus Christ. In verse 18, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life. Amen. Verse 19, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The supply of grace provided by our great God is immeasurable, is infinite. He himself is infinite. That, that phrase, grace much more abound, is a, is a funny Greek construction of, a, of superlatives, and it means super extra abounding grace. Super extra abounding grace. I love it. That's the grace that super positives all the negatives in your life, that super enlightens all the death, that super sanctifies all the degradation. Super abundantly abounding grace. And it's found in one place. It's found through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.24 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Titus 3 7, being justified by his grace, we've been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Ephesians 1 5, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Here's the purposes of God revealed again. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Ephesians 1 7. I got so many of these. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. 
result in Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, great woe leading to this, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up together with him and seated us together with him. Those funny little Greek words in there, so they had a little thing that says, soon, S-U-N. And so you take, he's made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us up together with Christ. And he seated us with him together with Christ. So it looks like this. That part of us that was dead, effectively, God has resurrected. Through the place of having stepped from unbelief to belief, from not having faith, I don't know unfaith is a word, <laughs> it's the faith, that, that moment you pass from death to life. You pass from judgment deserved to life undeserved, unmerited. Because you said, what he offered, the parameters that God sets, those are the parameters I'll adhere to. I want this. In the terms that have been tossed around right in there, ransom, justification, redemption, heirs, adoption, forgiveness. How about made alive, raised up? Together with him, we've been resurrected. Together with him, we've been made alive. Together with him, we've ascended. Together with him, we're seated. All of those related to the grace of God, the gift of grace offered to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Again, grace, grace comes only through Jesus Christ. And after that overabundance of sin, we find that God offers a super overabundance of grace. The supply of sin that mankind has fought, all our creation, all our existence to this point, is nothing compared to the abundance of the grace of God that he has for those that say, that's your, that's your, that's your clause? If, if I'm there, I can escape all it. If I'm there, I can escape this? I deserve this? But if I accept your provision, I can escape it all. That's grace. All of that darkness isn't to scare it. Well, maybe it is. <laughs> but it's to scare you to life. Who I was, I don't like to think of. Sometimes who I am, I don't like to think of. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. By the grace of God, I can pursue a new sense of life and a new sense of righteousness. By the grace of God, I can do things I never thought myself capable of doing. In some parts of the world, by the grace of God, you lose your life. Because you're not willing to say no. Jesus is my Savior. By the grace of God, you can be enabled to those things you never thought yourself to So play it back in your mind.
great God, great woe, great grace. All of this so that God can showcase the riches of his grace. So he can showcase who he truly is. As I've thought and I've worked through this, I say, you know, what, what is this all, what is this all for? God wants us to see him as he truly is. To see God as he truly is. He wants us to seek relationship with him as he truly is. All of these attributes, some of them are beyond our, our, our understanding. Omnipotence and omnipresence and, and omniscience, they can go beyond our understanding. But God directs these things to our understanding, not commanding, you will worship me, you will love me. God says, can't you see these things? This is how I really am. He wants us to know him as he truly is. He wants us to grasp who he truly is. Because when we understand that, when we truly grasp that, we will be perpetually drawn to him. We will desire to be drawn to him. How many times do I have to help? Understand who I am. Understand that my desire is to you. Understand that the great God of the universe, the creator of all things, sustainer of all things, upholder of all things, had a plan to rescue you from what you justly deserve. And he said, just do this. Believe in the one that I've sent. Believe in the one offering that was made for you. Believe in the one that gives you access. And when that happens, you realize that the riches of grace aren't just for this life. Your heart becomes connected to the Lord in a fresh way. You're being prepared for an eternal life in his presence. It isn't just grace for now. It's grace for eternity. I wonder why the angels say, because the angels understand. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You get into being in heaven and, and they're worshiping God forever. They understand. But they can't comprehend it the way that we do. They can't comprehend that what we didn't deserve, we got didn't get what we did <clears throat> when we get to that place we will find we can find we do find whether you admit it or not that worship rises up unbidden in you Worship isn't just a song, but sometimes it's that creativity that rises in you. There's a freshness, there's a vitality, there's a oh, that was a wild one. There's a moment. And I just want to offer that out. Yeah. 
what I was working this morning. It was just one of those, one of those moments that came in and said, with the tune that you bear with me. The mountains may fall and the sea dry to sand, but the glory of God will not fade. And I am not a sinner, but when I understand where I come from, from where I am, and I understand the fullness of God's grace bearing on my soul and being, sometimes the worship rises up on the and you have nothing to do but express it. 